let's be clear, it's a program designed to start to look at some of the ways that people in our communities are taking and dismantling institutional and systemic racism. My guest today is Olive Idehan, a wonderful, wonderful woman that I have had the opportunity to work with and be part of my development as a person over the last 20 years. And so without further ado, here is Olive. Hi, Olive. Hello, Bob. How are you? How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good, good, good. <laughs> Why don't you share a little bit of your journey, uh, not necessarily in terms of the jobs and positions that you've had, but just where you come from, how you got here, and just a little bit of a little personal stuff around what you enjoy about life. Okay. Uh, so I want to start out saying, Bob, you have taught me a lot. You have influenced my life. So I was, um, I'm actually an immigrant to the U.S. I came here, I think when I was about 17 to go to college. I'm part Nigerian, part Jamaican, and very, very proud of my heritage. Um, and just love life, love um, what I bring to community. I tend to have more of a global perspective because of my background. And I've been tremendously blessed to work in a profession that I'm actually very passionate about. So that's a little bit about me. Uh -huh. And you have, you have some youngsters? Oh yes, I, I have youngsters, young adults. They're actually taller than me now. Mm -hmm. So I have a son who lives in um, San Francisco and he is a product developer in the artificial intelligence space. And then my daughter is a freshman at the university. Great, great, great. So when we met early on, uh, you had started an organization called the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development. What got you in Washington, DC? And what got you to thinking about establishing that organization? Actually, Bob, I'd like to just um, make one edit. It was at that time called the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing okay. Development. All yes, right. mm -hmm. because there was also an organization called the Coalition for Economic Development. Mm -hmm. And I was their first executive director. I was their founding executive director. I had recently, I, at that time I had relocated from New York um, actually came here to get married okay. and that's that's how I got here and unfortunately the marriage is no more but the organization is standing and thriving and doing great things and at that time it was and it still is the umbrella group for nonprofits and for-profits very focused on affordable housing mm -hmm. development issues at that time the production the preservation of housing. And um, so as the founding executive director at that time, I was the boots on ground, the jack of all trades did literally everything, put the systems in place for the organization. When I say systems, I'm talking about, you know, personnel policies, um, investment policies, getting, hiring the staff. I mean, everything that you can imagine to set up an organization from an infrastructure perspective. And then on the flip side, very focused on the programs as well. So at that time, we did a lot of work around um, public policy advocating on behalf of 
the, the, the community development budgets that impact affordable housing. I was constantly before the DC City Council testifying. We also had a training program that um, that was very big on training, that was focused on the training and capacity of the members. So it was a membership organization. And um, and then and then we had, um, you know, so we did training, advocacy, and then resource development, right? Helping our members think through how, you know, what other sources of support they might be. So we were very focused on the membership organization. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then we also, and so remember I did say that there was a coalition for economic development at that time. So mm -hmm. we had we had similar members, uh, you know, and you know, and the one thing that we noticed was that we were always advocating <laughs> on, you know, against each other, you know. So mm -hmm. we would look at the housing budget and the, you know, and you know, if you know certain positions we would take on the housing budget would definitely impact economic development and vice versa so data would be advocating and then you know we're all in the same neighborhoods doing work and they would advocate on on the city beach budget as it as, as as it impacts economic development and then of course there would be blowback to the housing so it's like duh why don't we just merge right and create a new organization so there's unity in numbers and we speak with one voice. So that led to the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development. And then at that time I stepped down because I felt my skill sets were needed someplace else. So what your period of time was this all? Um I think that was I think around 1996. Okay. Around that time, yeah. So when, because this term affordable housing gets bannered around, how do you define affordable housing? How do I define affordable housing? Uh -huh. um, I would say housing that is affordable that is affordable affordable to me as an individual, right? And and that means different things based on our income, right? So you could earn a certain amount of money. I earn a certain amount of money. Um, so, so that's where affordability is a relative term to me. But according to the US Department of Housing and Urban Development, they say that we shouldn't spend more than 30% of our income on housing. So hence the affordability concept. So is affordable housing uh, a code word for, for black and brown people? say generally yes I, I would say that because um because the perception is that that's who lives in mm -hmm. this quote-unquote affordable housing that mm -hmm. is the general perception out there mm -hmm. but but um but but the reality is they're also non um black and brown people that live in this affordable housing as well so that that part of that equation is never really talked about. It's never really talked about. Yes. So affordable housing has become a stigma associated with, with black and brown people. Yes. So how how because you've have uh, been in it in a variety of ways. 
in before you started that organization, they had something came along in 1978 called the Community Reinvestment Act. Yes. Which was supposed to make sure, I believe, that some kind of equity dollars before they started calling this stuff equity again was winding up in our communities. Could you could you share a little bit around the Community Reinvestment Act and how you had to loop into that when you were a vice president with Bank of America? Okay, so the so the Community Investment Act, Community Reinvestment Act, you're right, he said, um, was part of the civil rights um, um, amendment. Um, and it says, because at that time, you know, during that era, you know, as we all are very aware, aware of, there was a lot of redlining, right? So I, as a, as a woman of color, would be go to a bank for a loan, you know, to buy a house or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'd be told that, oh, by the way, you know, perhaps you should look for that housing in that particular neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And when I go to that particular neighborhood, there's disinvest, there's disinvestment meaning the banks are not there, there are no small businesses, it's not a, you know, it's not a thriving um, economy. And at the end of the day, you know, the reason that we make certain investments is part of wealth building, right? Mm -hmm. um, so at the federal level, they came up with this law and said, you know, hold up, that's not right, that's illegal. And so the Community Reinvestment Act was born, which says that financial institutions um, must help to meet the credit needs of low and moderate income individuals, right? And it's not about race. It's supposedly not about race, but it's all about income. And so, um, so financial institutions, are, you know, track to, um, so there, you know, so there are several regulators here in the US um, that each of the, each financial institution that's regulated in the U.S. tracks to, and those, those regulators um, take them through, I think generally every three years through a very in-depth um, evaluation, right, to determine how much lending the bank has done for unaffordable housing, how much in small businesses, Mm -hmm. how much in philanthropic investments and how much, um, you know, we call that community development services. So how much time the, you know, the staff of the, you know, those financial institutions have actually spent in community. And uh, one thing about the CRA Act, CRA is that banks also have to determine what their assessment area, what their area of impact um, and then based on that, they are evaluated um, and, you know, and generally, and, and, you know, and generally, if you go into the lobby of a bank, right, mm. of most of these banks, mm. there's usually up on the wall a statement that will say we have met the requirements under the CRA, right? So it's there. And then the, and then at the very bottom, they will tell you, where you can get the actual documentation, like the, the information behind it, like which office and where you can actually go to get that. And that's hundreds of documents that, you know, and banks have teams, departments that they've actually set up to hmm. implement this thing called CRA. So CRA was supposed to be, in my language, a crack in the egg around institutional racism and systemic racism, especially in affordable housing. Is that accurate? 
<laughs> yes, affordable housing, small business. Yes, okay. investments, philanthropic uh -huh. investments. Yes. So, do, how have how have nonprofit organizations have they been using it as a leverage point in dealing with banks? From your experience, um, from I would say. I would say yes and no. I would say yes and no because first, first the nonprofits have to know that this thing even exists, right? So first they have to understand that, you know, because lots of times when I, you know, when I was still working in the financial sector and I talk about some groups would be looking at me like, oh, what is that? Well, we didn't know that was, um, you know, that, that that law even existed. So that's one. So yeah, so nonprofits have to understand what that law is, that it exists. So that's one. And then secondly, um, finding the right people at the financial institution to talk to, right? And, and, then, and then it becomes a, a dance, if you will, because, because that, you know, so that nonprofit has to figure out how to approach the bank, get into the bank, understand what the bank's strategic priorities are, mm. right? And what their area of impact, their assessment area is, and then hopefully begin to have conversations with them. And um, hopefully it will result in a win-win, a win-win situation. So can an average citizen, excuse me, can an average citizen go in and start to inquire and, and gather information about this and then they'd have to take it to a nonprofit group or can they institute something on their own as an individual? No, they can't as an individual um, and because the work that the, that the banks have done is public information. So yes, you can, you can, again, if you go into the banking center in the lobby, uh, you know, they will say, this is where you can find the actual document, you know, and you can actually request and say, I'd like to understand what's happened or what you've invested in my particular community. Mm -hmm. In DC, which used to be known as Chocolate City, mm -hmm. uh, it's less chocolate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I, 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 I personally believe redlining still exists in DC um, and that redlining has helped to lead to gentrification to some degree. That's my thought. What are your thoughts about it? So gentrification is real. Um, I remember when I started working when I was at the coalition and through my professional career in the bank, you know, it was very interesting just seeing neighborhoods like Columbia Heights then and Columbia Heights now. Seeing uh, parts of Anacostia then, parts of Anacostia now, right? Um, so, so gentrification is real. And, and my, my, my big concern about, you know, so gentrification has its good and it has its bad. So the negative sides of that for me is what happens to me. So the natives of that neighborhood, you know, I'm not talking natives as in birth. I'm talking people who have lived in that neighborhood forever and ever and ever before this gentrification started happening. You know, how do we provide for them? How do we make sure 
that they can remain in their neighborhoods because once the gentrification begins to happen, you know, of course the the you know the housing becomes affordable unaffordable. Mm-hmm. Um, changes begin to happen in neighborhoods. New people begin to move in. The dynamics change. Um, suddenly, I, as a native of that particular neighborhood, feel uncomfortable, and I'm being pushed and pushed further and further away because I can no longer I can no longer afford the services that are being offered as part of this gentrification. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's that's the big concern. Mm-hmm. How do we keep our legacy? I think that's the word I'm looking for. How do we keep our legacy residents in place? And what have you, what strategies have you seen to do that? Um, so the strategies that I think I've seen really depends on the nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. It depends on the for-profit development, you know, it depends on the players in that particular neighborhood. Um, it depends on and also it depends on the on the residents themselves, you know. So I tend to come from the I tend to come from the school of thought that um, you know, if I want something, I have to go after it. So, so that's I I've never believed that that you know that something has to be handed to me, right? So I tend to come from that school of thought. So I, you know, so I also believe that, you know, there has to be onus on the part of the residents to say, to be interactive, um, interact with your neighborhood, um, um, you know, associations like the advisory neighborhood commissions, understand what's happening, you know, when, when, um, when developments are happening in your neighborhood, don't just sit on the sidelines, actually, try and find, you know, what is this about? How is all this gonna work? How is it gonna impact me? What's the cost of how, you know, those very granular things that that we take for granted, you know, and when they have public meetings, go to them, make sure your voice is heard, right? And um, because, because this thing is being done to you, right? So if you sit on the sidelines, whatever, whatever happens as a result of it, then you have no one to blame. So you're saying that it's in people's self-interest in our communities to get out there and and do the homework. Absolutely. What if and they've been knowledgeable? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. What if but what if they've been beat up on so much that they just don't feel that they they got any power? I always believe that we have power. So this thing about being beat up. Um, to me, it's a big game, right? It's, it's a game, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to see how I could best describe it. Um, you know, you know, there's a saying, you know, or the, or the way I was taught, the way I was grown was you can't keep beating me, beating me, beating me every day and expect me one day not to open my mouth and rise up against you, right? Mm. Wow. So, so it's, that, it's that mindset that I come from, you know? So if you beat me the first time, um, I'm quiet because I'm trying to figure out who's this person, why did 
they beat me. What's the lesson I learned? The second time you do it, I may be docile, but the third time you do it, I'm going to bite you, right? <laughs> so, so, so that's a school of thought. That's how I was grown. Um, and, you know, so I, you know, so I understand that there, I, you know, I acknowledge, I understand, agree that there's systemic issues. I'm not denying any of that, right? Mm -hmm. Much believe that, that we, as, we as citizens, we as residents, we do have the power. We do have a say in what happens in our community. We do have a say in, um, in things that are being done to us. I, I very much. I hear you. So when you started to look, when you moved from CNHED, Coalition for Nonprofit Housing, to Fannie Mae Foundation, uh, what did you find there? Because I've never been in the foundation world. What, what was that like for you? So I wanted to understand where the money was and how the money worked mm. and how the control worked. Um, because when I was um, when I was executive director of the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing, one of my major responsibilities was fundraising, right? So I had to bring in money for the organization to pay the staff and all that kind of stuff. And so it dawned on me one day, it's like, you know, actually it was my mother, my mother, who uh -huh. sent me to my Jamaican mother. And I would tell her, oh, mommy, this is what I'm doing. And she's like, child, so you're going a begging? So that was what <laughs> And I was like, I was like, mommy, what are you talking about? What do you mean I'm going a begging? She's like, yeah, when you go to these people and you ask them for money, what do you think you're doing? So in her straight Jamaican manner, that was what she said to me. And that was like, ding, 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 something went off in my brain. So I'm like, oh, so I better understand where the money comes from, right? Because the he who has the money has the control at the end of the day. So that's what led me to the Fannie Mae Foundation. And then there I got a real um, hands-on experience on philanthropy, how it works, how decisions are made, how strategies are determined, who does what, right? And, um, and so suddenly the roles were reversed. Suddenly nonprofits were coming. <laughs> coming you, to me. you had the money. Yes, they were now coming to me and like, oh, you know, and doing, you know, everything that they thought they needed to do. And, you know, so, yeah. So that was, that's what I learned at the Fannie Mae Foundation. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about the politics of being in an organization like a Fannie Mae Foundation, because there's got to be some politics going on. Um, yes, there was, there was politics. Um, because the foundation, which has ceased to, which ceases to exist now, um, at that time, was a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It was, um, and there was the parent, the Fannie Mae Corporation, um, and there truly was that fine line that we had to constantly walk, because, you know, so you know, so the saying that perception becomes reality. Mm -hmm. I think. That was some of what may have happened at the Fannie Mae Foundation because um, 
politicians, people in general were just not convinced that the Fannie Mae Corporation was not telling the Fannie Mae Foundation, this is what you're going to do, this is how you're going to do it, this is who you're going to find. None of that happened because we developed we developed our own strategies, we interacted with the community, we came up with our own, you know, everything that needed to be done within, within um, community as a whole. So you saw the foundation part having significant impact in uh, changes in DC? And Absolutely. Um, we, at that time, I, I would say that we were the 500 pound gorilla in terms mm. of and we seeded a lot of projects, programs, opportunities within DC. Right? We seeded it. We tended to be that first, you know, that, yeah, that philanthropic entity that one would come and say, please help me. You know, I have this fantastic idea. And so we always took a chance on, on, um, on those particular organizations. And, Till today, a lot of those entities still exist. Has anybody stepped into the void in DC that Fannie Mae was doing? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. Because they gave out million, I mean, it was, they made significant impact in the community. Not to, not to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then when you left Fannie Mae, then you went to Bank of America. I'm glad I went. I'm glad the opportunity presented itself. I'm glad because that's the gift that kept giving in terms of understanding money, in terms of understanding power, in terms of understanding um, how how people with money look at the bottom line when it comes to community. So that was something that I learned there. Um, I learned a lot about community relations. I learned about the importance of being, I as a black woman of being authentic um, because, and that's where I really learned that, that, um, that my reputation precedes me, right? Mm. Because- Speak, speak to that a little bit, Paula. What's okay. that mean? Okay, so, um, and this is something that I say to the generation following me, right? So when people hear my name, there's certain pictures that will come up in their head, whether it's good or it's bad or it's ugly, but we all have, we all have preconceived ideas about people. And that's something that I would, you know, that the generation following me that I tend to talk a lot about, right? Um, because when I when I transitioned from working in the nonprofit sector to the for-profit sector, one of the things I promised myself was that I would be as open, honest, and transparent as much as I could mm. without divulging any pro proprietary information so that that nonprofit partner could understand what, you know, how to navigate Bank of America, how to navigate this world of CRA, how to na navigate what, you know, whatever the issues were, right? Um, and because remember earlier we had said that lots of times it was quite challenging 
for that mm. nonprofit organization to be able to get into these huge financial institutions. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I was determined to broker, right? Um, because I understood the language of community and nonprofits. Mm. I was learning the language of finance and, you know, community development and CRA. So, um, and, and it's that reputation that I think has helped me today, mm -hmm. fast forward, you know, because now that I'm self-employed, you know, an entrepreneur, lots of them said, have said to me, we remember what you did for us. Mm -hmm. Remember how you opened it, you know, because a lot of them are in there today because of that, that, that brokering, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, that happens, yes. So you've been an advocate all, even though you've been in the institution, you've been an advocate for community groups and community people, even while in those institutions I'm hearing and giving them some of the learning so they would understand how to be able to engage and get things done for the community. Absolutely. Uh-huh. So you, you were the spook who sat by the door inside the banking institution. I was what? You were the spook who sat by the door in the banking institution. Bob, you're funny. <laughs> no, there, there was a book that <clears throat> there was a book that was written called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Really? It was okay. by yeah, by a fellow named Sam Greenlee. So pick it up. Because okay. that's what you, I will. you you have been very effective at doing that. I will. You yeah. know, you know, Bob, because um community is who we are. Mm -hmm. Community shapes our lives. Community shapes who we grow up to become. Community shapes safety in our lives, shapes accomplishments in our lives. Everything about who each one of us is today can be tracked right back to the community that we lived and we grew up in. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where we get our values from. Exactly. Right. So I'm going to skip a little bit past your last job. Okay. Unless you want some highlights that you wanted to speak about. Not really. Okay. Not really. And I'd like to move into the new olive. Hey. And <laughs> what the new olive is doing to continue to build out your legacy in your working community. Okay. So the, so the new olive um, is excited. The new olive is refreshed, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I continue to, now I'm actually truly privileged to work in community. So I own a for-profit uh, consulting business now, very focused on working with nonprofit organizations and individuals. So a lot of these nonprofit partners we're talking about you know, from my professional career, I'm still, it's still my professional career. A lot of them have become my clients today, right? And um, so I still get to work in community. And then the flip side of that is I have also become a financial coach, right? Because I've always had, you know, when I was at the banks, at the financial institutions, I was always quick to put up my hand and say, yeah, I'll go out and teach about money and, and you know, banking, yeah, I'll go into community, I'll go into schools and teach and teach and teach. And so those are the two sides of my business. So we do 
organizational development, working with nonprofits on everything from board training, board development, strategic planning, right? Program management, facilitation of meetings. So that's one side of the house. Um, and then, um, then the other side of the business is doing financial coaching. So I'm, I'm a community person and I'm listening to this and I'm hearing you talk about financial literacy. What, what do you offer or what, where can I go to get, for example, my credit in a better shape? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just, I, I don't have a lot of income coming in, so I, I don't know how, how I can actually start any kind of saving. You've heard all those questions. Oh, oh yes, I, I hear all those questions. So, so give, I me deal with your, give me some of your responses to those questions. Okay, and I deal with that all the time. So I, I do financial coaching. Now, mm -hmm. let me describe what that is, okay. right? So okay. financial coach, um, you know, so we've all heard about personal trainers. I, in particular, I have a personal trainer, right? Mm -hmm. And I said to my personal trainer, I need to accomplish X, Y, and Z. And he will say to me, jump up, run around, do this, do that. Going through it, I'm not happy. But coming out of it, I am like, oh my gosh, I have dropped weight, I'm toned, I have endurance, right? So it's just, you know, it's kind of the same thing, but from a financial perspective. Okay. So as a coach, my job is to do real talk. So I do real talk with all my clients. Um, and we talk about, whatever their, you know, whatever their financial goals are and how to help them meet it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we look at how much debt they're in, right? We come up with strategies to help pay down that debt load. We look at savings, the importance of saving, the importance of having an emergency account um, because life happens, right? And the biggest life happening has happened to us over the last year. None mm -hmm. of us would have imagined that we would have been in the middle of a pandemic, right? And right. suddenly everybody's worried and stressed, you know, do we get the 1400 or 12, whatever that magic number is that they're, you know, talking about at the federal level and, you know, everybody's stressed out suddenly. And, you know, so usually I will say to my clients, but what if we had had that savings account? Right? life happens, life does happen. So we talk about that. We talk about um, strategies that they may need to accomplish whatever those goals are. So usually my first meeting with them is what are your goals? Short-term, long-term, whatever your goals are. And that's what I hold the client accountable to, right? Because, um, because when we have goals, when we have vision, that's what keeps us going, right? Keeps us going. And so I am one of the resident coaches at the Prince George's Financial Empowerment Center. Um, so that's a place that I would definitely um, encourage everyone. You know, we have, uh, you know, it's the Prince George's Financial Empowerment Center. Uh, you know, and if you Google us, you'll find us there and our services are free because we are supported by um, grant support. And so I'm one of the resident coaches there you know, at that particular entity. And, um, and I find that, you know, you know, coaching, coaching is a necessary thing today, right? Because it helps keep a lot of us accountable. So accountability is very real and it's necessary. 
and it's needed, right? Um, and yeah, so, so, and of course, everything we talk about is highly confidential, you know, because it gets into people's lives, you know. And then one thing I have learned is that the state of an individual's finances mirrors the state of their life, right? Mm -hmm. So that's on the financial side. Then on the um, on the side working with nonprofits again, like I say, we do board training, board development because it's the board. Again, and you know, an organization is as successful as its board of directors are. We do strategic planning, help organizations think through strategy. We do program management for some of our nonprofit partners, and it's exhilarating. It's just so much. <laughs> get this message out to our youth in, in the schools and etc because if we can get our youth at least in my mind understanding like when I was coming up as a kid we had a little back in the 40s we had a bank that we had an affiliation with and we'd have our little bank book mm -hmm. and be able to put our little 25 cents in and we learned about money and etc 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 so how, how, how can some of <clears throat> excuse me how can some of your learnings be translated to work with our youth and work with school systems. You know, so I, you know, so I totally agree with you, Bob. That that's a necessary thing um, that that must happen. Um, so I would say again, reach out to the Financial Empowerment Center. We're there, um, and then, you know, I'd be happy to come talk to schools. I'd be happy to come talk to classrooms. You know, because it's a basic message that. At the end of the day, we are all responsible for our lives, right? Mm -hmm. Our financial lives in particular. And, um, and so that's one, it's important to understand because remember I did say at the very beginning that money is control, it's power. To the extent that we have that and we build that wealth, that's a good thing. Um, I usually ask, you know, so if we're so burdened with debt, what is our quality of life around that? Mm -hmm. You know, we're you know we're paying all these credit card bills or whatever the bills are to these humongous corporations, right? At the detriment of our own self worth, if you will, right? And it's been proven that the you know having significant amount of debt it weighs us down, it creates illness, it creates stress, sleepless nights, right? Um, it's good to plan for the future, you know, um, you know, when one wants to go to college, you know, whatever those financial goals are, right? I tend to come from the school of thought of, um, of being deliberate, save, try and save as much as possible mm -hmm. and to, and have delayed gratification, right? It's not everything that we have to have now, you know, that, that magic word, no, is a good thing. Any thoughts on how we take your learnings and get to a point that we keep the money in our community than going out of our community? Um, so I would say buying within our community, right? Hiring within our community, make that our first thought. Um, supporting 
people in our community, right? Um, if I know you have a very particular skill, look to support you first, right? Um, if I'm hiring a new person on my team, look within my community first, right? Um, building partnerships together and, you know, and, and just be very conscious and deliberate about supporting our community. Mm -hmm. I think that's how we keep the money, how we keep the money, um, you know, flowing and moving. You know. In your travels, have you seen any examples of where do, we're doing that, you know, in a concentrated way? Um, I would say, I would say yes. I would say yes, you know, and I see it more and more happening now um, because suddenly everybody is more conscious about, you know, and I, you know, I think also because of the, you know, the race protests that we've had, um, everybody's more conscious now about this thing called community, right? And this thing about supporting each other. You know, I think, you know, there's like a new awakening um, that's taking place. And, you know, so I know that certainly amongst my friends, certainly amongst my professional colleagues, that's one thing that we're very deliberate about now, right? To support um, people, you know, to support members of our community. Mm -hmm. I know it's, you know, I'm at a loss of very specific examples right now, but I know it's existing. Yeah. So it would be important for us to, as much as we can, uh, look at some models that that might be out there. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, it would. I think that there's, at least I'm seeing some of it over in Anacostia, for example, mm -hmm. with the building bridges across the river. Okay. Um, that's one of the places that people might go to check out because they were also doing land banking there. Mm -hmm. You want to speak a little bit about how land banking is important? So land banking is important because the, the, um, the land bank entity takes control of that land, you know, that the housing is going to built to be built on mm -hmm. and it ensures that 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 whatever that structure is that is on that land remains affordable for I think 99 years. So, so anything that goes on that land has to adhere to what this affordability guidelines are, right? Um, so I can, I can, you know, so now I'm thinking about one, there's something that, you know, that a group of women and I do here um, and we call it, you know, and this came from, um, you know, parts, you know, Africa, you know, so I remember my, you know, during the time of my grandmother, right? In those days, um, you know, the women had this informal way of saving their money, right? Um, and I remember when I was coming up, my, my Jamaican family, I was a part of this thing called Susu, right? Okay. Um, so it's called different names based on the culture, but there are 11 women right now, 11 women that I'm engaged with right now. And um, so the way SUSU works is uh, it's not a lending, it's a savings, it's a savings model that we've come together and every week we put in X amount of money, right? Um, and we determine as a group, you know, how much it would be mm -hmm. affordable because once you get into this club, if you will, you can't pull out until the very last person gets their funding, gets their money. So every week 
let's say there are 11 of us. So 11 of us would put in, let's say for argument's sake, $100. I'm not saying that that's the amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say every, every week, like maybe every Friday, we all contribute into an account 1100, you know, 100, 111 times, right. representing the 11 women. And then on week one, so because there are 11 women, there'll be 11 weeks, right? Then on week one, woman A gets the full 1100, right? And then she has to keep contributing back. Week two, the second woman gets 1100, you know? So, so that's something. So we're actually in our fourth cycle now. And we found it very, very um, productive, beneficial, because at the end of, you know, every week they get a lump sum amount that they can take and do whatever it is they want to do, you know, pay down a bill, save for something. Um, and it's been, so far it's been, it's been very positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, very positive. So, yeah. so that's one informal thing that we're trying to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was part of one of those. Um, oh. Yeah, we, we, we did one about 20 years ago. Okay. And uh, we took it far enough that we didn't just do the rotation. We also were able to purchase land over in Ghana. Ah, I remember you've told me about your land in Ghana. Right. Ah, okay. Yeah. So one of the things I'm interested in is what, what, how do you see the relationship between African-Americans from this country and the relationship with the diaspora, with the continent? I, um, so it's, it's improving. I would definitely say it's improving um, because, because we are all one people, right? So I'm born here, you're born there. At the end of the day, the color of our skin is the same, right? You may say tomato and I say tomato, we're still talking about the same red fruit, mm. right? So, you know, and, um, and you know, so, so definitely it's improving um, because there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more understanding now about cultural norms, if you will, and, um, and I think, I think that's a fantastic thing. And I also tend to believe that, that the future of the black race in general is very much dependent and critical that the African continent, the, you know, Africans here in the US by, you know, those that have recently come, those have, that have been here forever, they need to come together and unify and work as one. Just like how you go back to Ghana, you have your land and your farming. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, those kinds of relationships are very important yeah. on both continents, parts of the world. Yeah. Part of what we're saying in the conversation, again, is that we're not talking about, we're just average folks. Yes. You and I. I mean, they ain't <laughs> like we were born with a bunch of money or anything else. No. You know? And so, but we learned certain disciplines around how to be able to, to maximize our resources mm-hmm. um, that have kept us out of jail, kept us being able to grow families and to help grow our own institutions. 
So there are some models involved around this dismantling institutional racism that we've learned. And part of that is also how to, how to go inside the organizations and learn about how they operate. Because if you don't know how they operate, then you don't know what you're dismantling or what you're, what, what you're challenging and what you're taking on. So mm -hmm. your journey along that way. So how, how are you continuing this mentoring Tell me about your mentoring that you're also doing, which is not on your resume, but I know you do. My mentoring, um, so I constantly, and I, I very much believe in mentoring, by the way. Um, you've supported me for 20 plus years, and I very much believe that, you know, the people we meet and see on our way up are the same ones we're going to meet on our way down, right? And so mentoring is important because it, you know, it's a form of validation, it's guidance, it's support, it's counsel, right? It helps to open up doors, it helps to reorient, it helps to support. So it has so many good things about, you know, mentoring. And um, so even, even um, you know, like generations, two generations behind me, um, even, you know, who are just starting out their careers that I met when I was still, in the financial sector, they still call me till today. They're like, oh, what do you think? Where should I go? Can you help me with this? Can you help me figure it out? And um, and that and that goes on. And that still goes on today. And you are right, Bob. Yes, I'm still very much involved in in mentoring people. <laughs> yes. So thinking five to ten years out, what are some of your thoughts about? where you want to be, where you see our community to be? What, what are some of your dreams? What are some of your visions for the future? Mm. So some of my, some of my dreams, my goals from, from my business for, for Collive, by the way, that's what it's called, Collive, C-A-L-L-I-V-E, which stands for Call Olive. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 I thought there was some language in the diaspora. No. I was aware of. <laughs> so simple as calling, because okay. when I was developing the branding, the person said to me, what do you want people to do? And I said, call Olive, right? So call it. Okay. So, um, so hoping to grow that, bring on more clients, you know, mm -hmm. from both the nonprofit and then the individuals. And, um, and I, I would... Also, I'm trying to ex explore international companies as well that I could do some business with. So that's one. And um, so for the communities, uh, there's a word that's in my brain right now, and the word is wholesome, right? So I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping that our communities can be wholesome again, wholesome in the sense that it is healthy, that our communities are healthy, they're robust, they're sound. They're peaceful, right? Um, they're safe, right? Because again, the original comment that our communities are who we are. So I need to be able to live with my next door neighbor irrespective of what the color of the skin is. Um, because at the end, we're all the same, you know, hoping that there can be an understanding of each other, hoping I can walk down my road in safety, I'm not be concerned that because of the color of my skin, or maybe the way that I talk, the way that I sound, the way that I pronounce my words, that I may be stopped on the road. You know, people may, you know, may form um, 
you know, very wrong perspective, you know, ideas about who I am. So that is my hope that, that, you know, that we as individuals, because it really does come down to each one of us to play a role and have a role, you know. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that in my, in my neighborhood now, <laughs> neighbors will actually, when they're on their porch, they will make it a point to say, oh, hi, hi, how are you? And then I laugh, I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness, six months ago, this didn't happen. The other day, somebody said to me, I was going walking and the person says, oh, happy, happy Black History Month. I'm like, oh. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. That, you know, caught me. I was surprised, but but that is, that's my hope for communities going forward. And that we can reach some kind of understanding, you know, dialogue, um, not take each other for granted. Um, you know, there's a, you know, you know, I guess the in thing now is diversity, inclusion, equity, all these things. Um, but but how do we as individuals play a role in that? How do we as individuals make an effort? to understand each other? How do we as individuals make sure that we don't have microaggressions on our part towards somebody else, right? How do we as individuals not make assumptions? How do we as individuals um, learn to not take each other for granted and ask those questions, you know, in a respectful manner? You know, I really don't understand what's going on. Can you educate me? Um, how, you know, so so that's what the word in my brain is right now. Mm-hmm. Sounds exciting, Lala. <laughs> yeah, I am excited. <laughs> That's, some people say, uh, as we're going through these times, <clears throat> excuse me, especially after January 6th, mm-hmm. that uh, there's not much hope. I believe that our communities, Black people, the only reason we still believe is we that believe that this country is going to eventually, if we keep kicking it, we'll do those things that it says in the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and all those other nice words. What we're asking the country to do is to translate from the words into behavior. Right. And uh, so that's part of what's transpiring right now. Mm-hmm. Olive has uh, definitely shared ways that uh, when we say let's be clear, you are clear around your goals and ambitions for our community, your goals and ambitions for ourselves, that you really see that there are opportunities, even when we think there aren't, for us to be able to move forward as a community and as a race, and that uh, you see the challenges that we're facing as opportunities. Absolutely. Uh, and so I just want to applaud you, who you are, and what you do, and how you do it. And I hope that our audience today will get the opportunity to reach out for you and to pick your brain the way that I do. Well, thank you, Bob. And I want to say thank you for your, I mean, you've just walked with me. You've supported me. I remember all those um, walks, those political walks you do. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, and then you'd come into the office, you'd walk around, say hello to you, and then you'd take me out for lunch. And then we have a heart-to-heart conversation. Yeah. And I've grown. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for encouraging me. I had, I had my mentors, mm-hmm. and I still do. Um, you know, all of us, I don't know anybody that doesn't need encouragement, doesn't need support. Um, the thing that I learned is if you're going to grow, you have to be the strongest.